Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down this week with Arthur Brooks, who's really one of the most interesting people I know. Some of you may have met him here five years ago when he told his story from college dropout to symphony musician to Ph.D. in behavioral economics to president of the influential conservative American Enterprise Institute. Today, Arthur Brooks is a professor at Harvard and best-selling author focused on a different portfolio, the importance of happiness in leadership and in our everyday lives. Here's that conversation. Arthur Brooks, it's great to see you again. Nice to see you too, David. Seven years ago, we got together in uh, the winter of 2016, right here on on this podcast, and the world was uh, a much different place. And uh, uh, I, I so enjoyed that conversation because you have the most remarkable journey of of uh, anyone I know from college dropout to French Hornets for the Barcelona Symphony to president of the American Enterprise Institute. Like nobody could draw that up. Uh, so. Yes. Yeah, no, it's not the typical path. And, um, you know, this is a great thing about you know, when you talk to people in the United States, almost everybody's got some weird story like that, right? I mean, yours is pretty weird too, isn't it, David? It's not as weird. It's not as weird. It's sort of a, a it's sort of, you know, it's not, it's not like going from the the orchestra to the, you know, the leading uh, conservative uh, think tank kind of thing. But it, it's, but look, you know, you and I both, I think, share something, which is, I believe very strongly that life is, it comes in chapters. Right. And that, and it, and it's, and chapters are scary and good. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. Yes, totally. So you, you've lived by that and, and you left the AEI. Uh, two years, I think, after our after our conversation, and I wanted to ask you, um, uh, because you are a proponent of a kind of positive, uh, uh, you know, rendition of conservatism, a hopeful rendition of conservatism. Um, did the did the Trump you left at the peak of the Trump years? Did that make your life harder? Uh, it's well. It's a good question, David. And, you know, people have asked me that in the past. Like, I was running the American Enterprise Institute, which is a, a free enterprise um, oriented organization. It's, so it's not, it's, it's, uh, it has everything to do with opportunity. It's every, everything to do with reaching to the margins of society to create equal opportunity for everybody. So I had a very positive vision from the very beginning. Not that it's uncontroversial. I mean, there's all kinds of legitimate reasons for us to disagree, even about the free enterprise system, of course. But when we came to a moment of populism and real polarization, where it seemed like American politics was 
was uh, was competing between right and left to see who was more closed, who was more polarizing, who had more you know violent rhetoric uh, about the other side. It was pretty discouraging. You know, my friends on the center left said the same thing, and I, we kind of I, I sort of feel like a lot of the country didn't have much of any place to go. I think that there was kind of a an outrage industrial complex or competition between the five percent fringes on either side of of American politics, which I, you know, I have to, I have to say, I don't think that we've really cleared through that quite yet. Uh, do you, do you disagree? I would say no, no. <laughs> In fact, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and we're going to get into, I mean, you know, you write this column for the Atlantic on, um, on happiness and you're, you've got a new book coming out in, uh, in September on this and, and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a zealous proponent of happiness as right. not just a good way of life, but actually a way to have a successful life. All of that, and hap, you know, that goes, extends to the country. There is a, you talk about the outrage in, in industrial complex. We have a misaligned set of incentives today uh, that runs through the social media network and the communications industry and politics. Right. Where, you know, outrage actually is rewarding. Uh, anger is rewarding. Fear is rewarding. And you've spoken about this. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this is one of the things that we find is that the, and again, this goes in cycles. There's nothing new under the sun. And it goes very, very quickly. I mean, it's like for, for people who feel so frustrated about American politics today could never be good again. Let's remember that when you and I were last in Washington, D.C., you know, at full flower of what we were doing, I was running AEI and you were in the Obama White House that um, 2012, that election in 2012, it's extraordinary to think about it, that it was um, two good men were running for president and neither one of us was going to move to Canada if the other guy won. Right. I mean, it, yeah. Neither one of us was going to be very upset. The, the, I miss those days. Did you know that I actually became uh, friends with Mitt Romney after that election, as I did with John McCain after the election of 2008? As I did, honestly, uh, I mean, friends would be an overstatement here, but, you know, I have a, a very uh, a cordial relationship with George W. Bush, who couldn't have been nicer to us in the transition yeah. of 2008. And yeah, I long for those days when you don't have to go yeah. to sleep terrified. But yeah, I mean, it was, I, it was you, you preferred that, that Barack Obama win the 2012 election, just as I was preferring the Mitt Romney won it, but I wasn't terribly disappointed when he didn't. You know, I woke up the next day after the election, I said, yeah, it's really hard to beat a popular incumbent president. No kidding. Yeah. And the world kept turning. And, and, and if, he, if, if lightning had struck and Mitt Romney had won, it would have been okay. For America, but the point is that things change really, really quickly. Why do they change so quickly? And it has everything to do with the fact that we go through these these general waves of populism. And you and I have been involved in politics long enough to have seen a couple of those waves. But these go way back. I mean, these go way back to you know the founding of the country. As a matter of fact, and the good news ordinarily, I mean, you could almost say this time is different. But ordinarily, you see that that outrage is not the the nesting place. It's not the, it's sort of the top of the hill and something will knock the ball back down into the valley, which is that the United States is pretty functional, that the political system is not 
congenial to everything and everybody all the time, but it, it works pretty well. And, and we can have more elections like 2012 and not so many like 2016 and 2020. So I'm actually pretty bullish that this is a disequilibrium and not a political equilibrium. And I'm waiting for things to go back to normal and pushing them as fast as I can. I know you are too. Yeah, well, I signed up for this hour of therapy, so I'm, I expected you to say that. Uh, and I hope you're right. You know, the thing, and we have had these epics in American history. Uh, and, you know, you've pointed out uh, somewhere that, uh, you know, the 60s, which when I was a kid, the 60s were pretty turbulent. We had all kinds of domestic intranquility, violence, the assassinations and so on. So by a lot of measures, that was, uh, you know, worse than we are uh, right now. But um, I think the thing that concerns me is how much uh, the internet and the social network have changed that and uh, have changed things so that outrage and, and, you know, these algorithms of the social media network, they're not they don't have sides. They're not Republican or Democrat. Uh, they're not, you know, left, right, center. They're they're just trying to keep you online, right? And their inspiration is the thing that keeps people online is outrage and anger and fear, and they shove you into these silos and and where your views are affirmed but not necessarily informed. And everybody outside the silo is alien and threatening and dangerous, and so. You know, we've never had anything quite like this where instantaneously venom can spew into the, the and go to and hit the targets they want to hit because of big data. And right. I think that we haven't got our arms around that yet. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I'm a little bit more positive about that for a couple of reasons. And I'm not just being Pollyannish on this, I don't think. Almost any time that the means of mass communication have changed, it's, it's created, It's it's been ushered in with a period of incredible polarization, sort of filter bubbles, whether it's, you know, the the way that, um, you know, pamphleteering worked early on in the, in the Republic or of whether um, it was, you know, when the telephone or when newspapers started to become more well, national. Well, radio, Father, Cop- yeah, radio. Father Coughlin and others. Yeah, I mean, yes. Exactly. Yeah, and so this is what we see. Now, what happens ordinarily when, when a new technology is actually ushering in this kind of polarization and, and, and populism is that, it it gets misused for a while until people a figure it out and b really stop trusting it for all sorts of good reasons. And one of the interesting things that we're seeing right now, for example, is that the people are starting to figure out that you eat that you can't. And I've actually seen interesting data on this recently, no doubt. So have you? People don't trust internet reporting um, about politics, even on their own side. So people will pass on stories, but then they'll say privately that they don't trust the particular story. In other words, they know it's propaganda. And this is increasingly happening to the point where, especially with AI, you're not even going to be able to trust a photograph or a video. And I think this is where we're going to be able to move into a healthier space and go back to the kind of relationships that we need to have a healthier country that we don't, that we properly don't trust this because we know we're being manipulated, but it takes a good 10 or 20 years for us to absorb the technology. Let's remember that it, even in the advent of the telephone, that there was just prophets of doom saying that people were never going to go out of their house ever again. When every house was wired up with a telephone, that we're all going to become hermits, that people were going to hold up their telephone at church as opposed to going to church. And and suffice it to say that now they, can, person, now they can just carry it in their pocket to church. But yes. 
I know, but people are still, they still need human relationships. And one of the, you know, one of the things that we see a bigger story, even the political polarization having to do with this technology is that it's made us incredibly isolated and lonely. It's led to all kinds of self-harm. It was, it, it was just, it's the worst thing that's happened to adolescents, for example, in yeah. screens and social, and social media, much worse than what happens to people our age politically. And the result of that is that we're going to have to, we're, we have to learn how to use the technology responsibly. And I'm persuaded, given our past history, that we will. It's just taken a lot of casualties along the way. My concern about it is just that the thing that's changed is the speed at which technology is churning. Right. And so whether we as a society can get our arms around the implications of these things that we are inventing uh, in time to make real, uh, you know, kind of uh, a, a curative uh, maneuvers, uh, preventative maneuvers, and uh, that is that is what worries me. And you know, we we see a confluence of things. Technology has changed. You know, the economy. You're an economist. You know, in in ways that have changed very rapidly, brought advantages to those in some sectors, and has further disadvantaged those in others. You know, you said, and you were right, and I think I mentioned this earlier that the there was the financial crisis, and I would add effects of globalization on some communities um, right. helped add to the sense of alienation. But now we have this, these tools that can just exploit, and we don't even see them doing it. Like I get, I get information that are that's customized to me. So you know, it's just like I'm. I'm not. I don't want to be either a luddite or a downer, but I do think it's. Your mission is complicated, and our combined mission of a more hopeful brand of of politics is is really challenging because we're yeah. because politicians have assumed the same techniques as social media networks. That's how they raise money. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I've said this here before. She's one of the great fundraisers in the Republican Party. I mean, which is inconceivable, really. Yeah, no, because it's, yeah, for sure. I mean, she's able to say things that are that are not mainstream for American conservatives, but she's able to say them to everybody who's highly mobilized and extremely intense and their beliefs who are the people who are most likely to write checks, at least right. relatively small checks is the way that it turns out. So for sure, this is the case. But the one thing to keep in mind, David, which is really important that always happens when we have these where we have these substitute technologies for the relationships that we really want is that they're, they're no good. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, it's like people are going to figure out, I hate social media. That's what they're going to figure out because social media is terrible. It's boring. It's alienating. It le it's like, it's the, it's equivalent of eating all of your meals at McDonald's. Social media, it, it literally neurophysiologically impacts you in, in a parallel way to way, the way it would be if you're eating three meals a day in, in a fast food joint which is too many calories and not enough nutrients, which can leave you, you know, overweight and malnourished at the same time. What happens with social media is that you, you, you crave it because you want human connection. But at the same time, what you're really craving is a, a neurotransmitter or the neuropeptide called oxytocin that you only get a little trickle from, from the social media. And so you, you binge it and you get lonelier at the same time. People figure that out sooner or later. What we need is human community. The great thing, this is one of the, the really wonderful things that you did when you were running the, the, the first and second Obama campaigns, is that you talked about politics as community. I just admired that so much 
because that's exactly what we crave. One of the reasons that people were so drawn to these campaigns that you were doing is because people wanted community. I mean, conservatives like me, we derided that government is the thing that we all do together. And I, I realize it's easy to make light of that, but what you really meant, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is that politics is something that should draw us together as human beings. And that's what we want. I think ultimately that's what we're going to demand. Well, I hope so. I, I really hope so. I mean, this is obviously a pivotal moment because, um, you know, Trump is in a jam. And uh, I think, think that he, I th yeah, but I, you know, he, he will go down in history as one of the most diabolically adroit kind of manipulators of narrative. I mean, he's a brander and he knows how to brand and he has branded these indictments as the revenge of the establishment of, of the deep state of the corrupt Biden administration. And perhaps we should have, but who would have predicted that these indictments would have made him stronger within his tribe? Yeah, temporarily. I mean, this is the way things ordinarily work is that the, the minor blips are this. I think that's weather, not climate, actually. I mean, I think a lot of the things that we see right now to do with the news cycle, it's almost always weather. But we tend to mistake it for climate because we're so close to it at this, at this point. I don't think we have any idea how public opinion is going to work with this in the next in the next year or two. Uh, we just have to kind of wait and see and do our best. Yeah, listen, I'm not predicting that he will be elected president, but in the short run, it's phenomenal that he has sort of hijacked a party. And, uh, you know, Republicans, for their own survival, are looking for ways to, you know, if they don't want to affirm him, then they need to attack the system and the weaponization of government and the FBI and the DOJ. And this is what concerns me. The thing that always concerned me about him wasn't, you know, we can argue about views on issues, but it was the sort of systematic sundering of rules and laws and norms and institutions that are essential to democracy. And so it pains me to see people saying, yeah, you know, we're going to deal with this weaponization. Not that the FBI, the DOJ, or any other institution shouldn't be scrutinized, right? but this is basically Trump's way of, it's his get out of jail free card. Yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's really going to be a get out of jail free card. And I still think that, um, and again, I mean, I'm going to try to be able to look at the positive side a little bit more, despite the fact that I'm probably a little more negative than you are about like the IRS, et cetera, and, and the way that it's been politicized. I think that under the circumstances that it's it's easy to remember right, at this point, it's really worth us remembering at this point that politicians are not, let's just be honest about it, not always the most principled characters. They tend to be relatively opportunistic and they say, well, this is the way the party's going. And, and I, I, you think about, you know, there's slightly different historical circumstances where after President Obama left office, let's just say that that Jeb Bush and Bernie Sanders had been the nominees. And it's just like slightly different political circumstances. I mean, you're the expert on this on, on campaigns, but it looked to me like a couple of percentage points in a few states. And, and that's that those circumstances could have gone true, could come true if Jeb Bush had been the presumptive nominee on the right and people kind of went along with it and Bernie Sanders were the renegade. And, and then, you know, the narrative would have been, see, I told you that those, I told you that the that Democrats were a bunch of socialists. David Axelrod said, no, no, he really believed in free enterprise all along. But let me tell you, I knew it. And it would have been a it, just a slight difference. And the narrative would have been completely flipped on its head. And we would have been talking about this in a different way. Bottom line, 
This is disequilibrium in the Republican Party, also in the Democratic Party, and we're, we're learning to come back. The key thing that we need to be thinking about right now, all of us, is how can we learn and grow from what's going on right now? That's what we need to be thinking about. By the way, that's what you should always be thinking about when you're experiencing misery in your life. I mean, look, you've suffered a lot in your life. Everybody has. And in those moments, if you can ask, what can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? Where's the opportunity in this? How can I lift other people up and lighten, the, lighten their load from this? That's when things can actually go better and you can actually recover faster. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. I will be mad at myself and a lot of people will be mad at me if I allow there to be an equating of Bernie Sanders, with whom I agree on some things and not on others, and a Donald Trump. Because, you know, the one thing... I believe is that Bernie Sanders would stand up for these democratic institutions. Um, and I don't think, you know, you may, you and I may have a different view. I, I, I think you are a person of really good heart and I'm not, you know, but we may have different ideas about how to get to a certain result. Of course. Bernie Sanders may believe that we should have universal health care. I may be more attuned to his view on that and, and how we get there than you are. But you, I'm sure you believe people should have health care they need as well, you know, and that we could go through all of these things where our objectives are similar, but, but they're all within the parameters of a system in which we debate these things and sometimes we win and sometimes we lose and we compromise, you know, Bernie Sanders... I'm sure was not happy when the Affordable Care Act didn't include a public option. Right. But he voted for the Affordable Care Act because he knew it was, in his view, a step forward. In mine, too. Yours, maybe not. So, you know, I, I hear these these things being equated. Donald Trump is sui generis. <laughs> and, yeah. and he'd probably 
insist we say that, but, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, I think he would actually insist that he's sui generis too, but, yes. and, and by the way, David, I would, I would think less of you if you didn't pick out that parallel that I made. So, so, you know, of course you picked out that parallel and, and I, I completely understand what you're saying and, and I agree with you that they're not parallel in every way. The idea that he, that Bernie Sanders is as radical as Donald Trump in certain ways. And by the way, I agree with Donald Trump on certain policies in his first administration more than I would agree with Bernie Sanders, no doubt, despite the fact that Bernie Sanders is a more mainstream politician. My only point is that if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee and if he would have won the presidency, I think. And if that were the case, the narrative would have been, would have been you Democrats have been talking about you know, trying to be mainstream and, and the importance of capitalism, but all along, you really were democratic socialists like Bernie Sanders and everybody would have kind of fallen in line with a much harder left position than that which would have existed under Hillary Clinton. That's my only point. Yeah, we could talk about Denmark and places like that yeah, and whether, sure. you know, but yeah. uh, where, where, you know, capitalism lives as, alongside a, a, a social safety sure. net. You know? Sure, sure. But absolutely. I don't want to, I don't want to, but I don't, but this is a great opportunity to get back to my original question, which is, I know that you, you did agree with Trump on some things and on others, you vehemently disagreed. You're a strong advocate for immigration, right. for example. And I know your, your wife is an immigrant right. to this country. And, and there are other issues on which you strongly disagreed. And, and so back to the original question, did you find it uncomfortable and did that contribute to your, notion of why it was time to move on? Or did you, you'd been there, what, 10 years? Is that how long you were there? Yeah, 10 and a half. I was president for 10 and a half years. Actually, it didn't really play into it. I told the board of AEI, uh, the American Enterprise Institute, when I took over, I was going to be there for 10 years. And I lied. I was there for 10 years and six months. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, and part of the reason is that I taught nonprofit management at Syracuse before I went there. I teach it now at Harvard since I left. And and one of the things that I teach my students is that chief executives shouldn't stay in their role for more than about 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you're there for less than five, it probably means that you're not able to instantiate the vision that you wanted. After about five, you can. And then you get years six through 10 to actually live in this thing that you've built. But you don't generally get a second vision. And you right. got to leave the organization for the next leader. It's really healthy. It's a good thing to do. So, and, and you know, the truth is, Every time is a time of tremendous opportunity and a, you know, a great organization like AEI or, you know, all the things that you've done, these are wonderful platforms to do it. But I had, I got my chance is what it came down to. So I just have to tell you that I so agree with you. And in fact, I just left my position as director of the Institute of Politics that I yeah. founded in January and it was 10 years to the day. And I told the university <laughs> that I would only stay for 10 years for the exact same reason. And I really believe it's important to, uh, yeah. you know, because it's comfortable to stay. It's easy to stay. Yeah. But I also knew exactly what you said, which is that, you know, I still was excited by it. I still had ideas. But a lot of it was muscle memory after yeah. a while. And everybody around you sort of responds to you and it, it dampens the sense of entrepreneurism. For sure. That for sure. An organization needs. So you left and you took a long walk. I did. Well, part of it is I just couldn't remember kind of who I was. You, you become an institution. And I'm not inherently very political person, notwithstanding that, you know, the whole first 20 minutes of our conversation, which was, you know, talking about American politics, it doesn't cross my psyche all that often. I, I'm, a, I'm a social scientist by background. I'm really interested in human behavior 
more than I am in political systems and, and, and even, even more than I am interested in public policy. And so I kind of forgot about all of this, all these things that I care about it, who I was intellectually and who I was emotionally to a very large extent. It was such a consuming experience. And you know, Washington, DC, it's the most intense thing in the world. And so I, I decided to kind of clear the palette and I went and I walked the Camino de Santiago, which is this several hundred mile walk across Northern Spain. It's a, it's a Catholic pilgrimage. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a practicing Catholic. I actually go to mass every day. And, and it's a, my Catholic faith is most important thing in my life. And I thought, well, let me do this thousand year old pilgrimage and, and, and let's see whether or not I can remember me and, uh, and with some little prodding from the Lord, perhaps. And I, and it was incredible. It was this amazing experience. All I did was I walked and with my wife and we walked and we prayed and we talked and, and I, I was refreshed and I came back ready to do something new to, to create value in kind of a new way. And I kind of remembered, I, I didn't feel bitter. I didn't feel, I didn't feel even sentimental about the past. I, I felt energized and, and ready to, 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 to do something new that would lift people up and bring them together. I also, by the way, I, I kind of wrote a mission statement for myself, which is that I was going to spend the rest of my life lifting people up and bringing them together in bonds of happiness and love using science and ideas. And um, it gave me a lot of energy. We'll get into this more when we talk about from strength to strength. But Washington's a very unhealthy place, I find. You know, I, and I always knew that. And uh, when I went to work at the White House, I used to call myself a Chicagoan on assignment because I knew that I would leave. But in that book, From Strength to Strength, you talk about the pernicious quality or, or the pernicious habit of strivers to define themselves by what right. they do and the notoriety they get for it. And... Washington is a town, and there are others. I mean, I bet uh, Hollywood and you know New York can be that way. But but it's like the first question you get is, "What do you do?" And then it's like, "What meetings are you in?" And what it's really yeah, unhealthy. It's a, the, the real question people are asking is, "How close are you to power?" That's the real question in Washington D.C. Right. And it's interesting because if you go back a thousand years, practically or eight hundred years, Thomas Aquinas he writes in the Summa Theologia, which is this magisterial text about everything in the world, not just religion. He talks about happiness and he talks about the fact that one of the, the reason that people aren't happy is because they're idolatrous. And there's one of four idols that they tend to pursue. He's a, he's a very good social scientist. He says they're money, power, pleasure, or honor. And by that, he didn't mean like, you know, my son's a Marine who's, who serves with honor. That's not what he meant. He meant fame or prestige or the admiration of strangers or something like that. And what you find is that people who, they, they tend to cluster on their particular idols. It's a very interesting phenomenon. So if you notice when you go to New York and you're at a party, a kind of a fancy party in New York, you've been to a million of these parties, I know. They're kind of boring. And the reason is because everybody's talking about money. That's because that's the idol in New York. If you're in LA, I'm, I'm you know, we're talking today, I'm in LA, you're in Chicago. LA, it's all about fame. You know, who do you know who's famous? DC is power, man. I mean, it's power. And so people, they want to know how close you are to the president, how close you are to, you know, members of the Senate or the cabinet, right. whatever it happens to be. How close, do you know David Axelrod? Is your friend David Axelrod? He's a powerful guy. That's, that's, I mean, it's funny. You are actually the kind of person that people would brag about knowing because of this idolatry that they actually have every year. But I always was aware that they'd brag about knowing me for the duration of my time 
in the White House. And then someone else would move into my office and they'd be bragging about knowing that person or that's who people would seek. It's a, it's yeah. a pernicious thing and it's, uh, and it causes people to behave in ways that they shouldn't behave, that you don't, that, that you don't right. want to behave in which you end up valuing the wrong things. Well, it's objectification and objectification is, is, is inherently wrong. I mean, I'm sure your father taught you what my father taught me, which is if you objectify, you know, a woman, for example, that's a, that's a sinful thing to do. It's a wrong, it's a morally disordered thing to do. But we tend to objectify people in all different sorts of ways because of the power they have, the money that they have, whether they're good looking, whether they have fame, they can give us something. We even objectify ourselves, David. One of the biggest mistakes that people who are successful, the strivers make, is self-objectification, where you are your job you are a success machine, which is an incredibly human, humanizing thing to do. And it militates against, it makes happiness impossible, quite frankly. Yeah. It also, you know, I think you'll find with a lot of the so-called strivers that you describe that um, there is, you know, a hunger for approbation. And maybe they didn't get it when they were kids, or maybe they were taught that the way you get approbation is through uh, yeah. achievement and uh, through yep. notoriety and uh, just a very, it's very unhealthy. And I think it's one, it's a problem in terms of our politics and our governance, because if your self-worth is tied up in your status, you'll do anything to keep your status. And it causes people to make compromises of principle. I mean, compromises are required in politics. A principle of democracy is that we should compromise you know, we have to compromise. But in the environment we discussed earlier, compromising is viewed as a traitorous act. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, it, can you imagine if you were, you know, successful in business, you would never say, I'm going to go negotiate a deal. If I don't get 100%, it means I lost. You don't even want 100% when you go into a negotiation of business. You want the other party to be happy so that you can, you can do business together again. So I'm a very, very successful, you know, finance guy in New York. That's a mutual friend of both you and me. Um, he, one time he told me, he says he looks for opportunities to do something nice in a negotiation, even if he's winning the negotiation, because he wants the other person to go away from the table and say, that's a stand up partner. This is somebody I want to do business again. But right now, if you look at the way that the Senate is functioning, both on the democratic and Republican side. The way they talk is if I don't get 100%, it's tantamount to zero and I've lost. And that's a very dangerous political uh, uh, order of business. And that's not the way it was when you were in the White House. I know that for a fact because- Yeah, and well, and I think historically, even in some of our most vituperous times, people in public office felt like they were part of a shared mission- and so you'd see these rancorous debates in the Senate and then, you know, Ted Kennedy and John McCain would go and have a, a drink. Right. And they'd, you know, they'd leave the floor with their arms around each other. They'd made their case. They made it loudly. They made it as strongly as they could. And they understood that that was the process. But it wasn't, you know, this notion that we are now not just political opponents or opponents on an issue, but we are enemies. We're, we enemies. Are enemies. We're enemies. This is really yeah. crazy when you think about it. I mean, the truth of the matter is that, um, you know, I, I was giving a, one of these retreat keynotes to uh, mm -hmm. members of the Republican Party uh, when you and I were both in Washington, that, you know, the, all the members of the House said it. And, and I said, how many here wish we 
live in a one-party state. Uh, no hands. I mean, no hearts. Nobody wants to live in a one-party state because sooner or later you're going to be in the you're going to be in, oh, you're going to get the short end short end of that stick. And I said, well, then how many of you are grateful? to live in a, you know, a multi-party, at least a two-party democracy. Everybody agrees with that. I said, you just told me you're grateful for the other side. You just told me that. You know, the truth is you should be very grateful for the people who disagree with you in a democracy. Why? Because you're wrong. You just don't know what you're wrong on. I mean, I'm wrong, David, I'm wrong on tons of things. I just don't, I need to talk to you. So I can figure out the things that I'm wrong on. Already, you made me think about something. I can't. I should, I should. Well, I'm, I'm yeah, here yeah. for you, brother. Anytime you want <laughs> to you know, talk it's about really that. Important, right? <laughs> I mean, this is if you're going to be a person of integrity and you're going to be a person who improves. If I'm wrong, I don't want to know last. I want to know first. And the only way I'm going to figure that out is if people of goodwill are talking to me. And, and I need to be surrounded by people who would actually disagree. I'm very grateful to live in a country where every single person doesn't think like Arthur Brooks. It would be a nightmare. And we'd make tons of mistakes. On that point, I think one of the things that frustrates the American people about politics, this was true when we ran in 2008 and we tried to run against it, was this idea that uh, we weaponize problems instead of trying to solve them, that each side tries to weaponize problems to advantage themselves in the next election uh, because power is the most important thing and they want to continue to hold it. And um, we really need to, we need leaders who are going to fight that impulse. And I have to say, you know, you, uh, I'm not making this as a partisan point, but I was pleased when uh, the infrastructure bill passed and the chips bill passed, uh, when, you know, even a modest gun uh, bill passed, because it proved that you actually could still do something along party, across party lines in Washington. Uh, and it was noteworthy in ways that wouldn't have been necessarily that noteworthy in past eras because it's, it's, it's more yeah. rare now. And, you know, that's, that, that's a shame. And this is a shame. And I think that we need to work to actually induce people who have that mentality to get back into politics. One of the biggest problems, you know, when I'm traveling around and people ask me, I mean, these days I talk about the science of happiness, so it's easier. But when I'm talking about something political, People will say, how come we don't have good people? And I'll say, why aren't you running? And there's an answer to that. You know, why, you know, good people in communities are not running for public office. And the answer is they don't want journalists pawing through their trash. And they don't want people uh, that are, you know, making sure that any inconsistency of anything they've ever said going back 10 years is not exposed and calling them a hypocrite. They don't want any indiscretion in their past that's got, goes on full view and embarrasses them in front of their kids and grandkids. And so the truth of the matter is we've created disincentives for anybody, but the biggest zealots to get involved in politics right now. So those incentives we have to change as soon as we can. The the biggest zealots are people who crave power. Those things, the yeah, power and or power and and celebrity, I think, uh, enters into it as well. The two of them, yeah. And I look, it is a also an environment in which we are so we are being so prodded to believe that people on the other side are not just good faith opponents, but not patriotic, even dangerous. I mean, you see this in in polling. And now we see all these sort of references to violence. And I spend every day of my life trying to urge young people to lean in and not lean out. But we need to make the environment better. So to wit, 
you're teaching a course at Harvard called Happiness and Leadership. And 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 as you point out, you 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 it's data based. Talk to me about that. I'm, I'm really intrigued by it. Well, let me connect that, which is you know a lot of people ask me why are you doing this really different thing than when you were in AI? And the answer is it's not different. One of the, the great frustrations that I had when I was running a think tank in Washington, D.C. is that we had all these great whiz-bang policy ideas, many of which were completely nonpartisan. And you can go out with the best policy ideas in the world, and if people don't have a demand for them, this all the supply doesn't matter. The reason that a country gets better is there's a demand for something better. I'm now on the demand side for a better country. I'm on the demand side for healthier communities and, and families that are, are, are happier, people that are happier. That's what I'm on the demand side for, by helping people understand that they can be happier. They can be happier with uh, the right protocols by sharing different ideas that will lift other people up. I'm, the reason I have a class called Leadership and Happiness is because I want every leader to be a happiness teacher. And guess what? Every single person in the country is a leader. I want to create a new generation of happiness teachers that are trying to spread these ideas of lifting people up and bringing them together in bonds of happiness and love. And then, then I mean, David, then you've got a good country that makes itself when people are actually demanding more happiness as opposed to thinking that, that if by destroying my enemy, I'm somehow going to vanquish the foe and have, you know, 500 years of uninterrupted perfection, which is complete insanity. So I'm, I'm working on the demand side now as opposed to the supply side. And I got to tell you, it feels really good. I feel like I'm, we're making a lot of progress. You know, we have millions of people who read this material. Um, I'm working with people that are that would disagree with me politically up one side and down the other. And it doesn't matter because David, this is what you were talking about. We need to work together, even though we disagree, because that's what a great country can do. And when you talk about happiness, man, that's something we can all agree on. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. You know, you used the word earlier, and I should have raised this point earlier, of community uh, and place. Uh, I'm adding the word place. But you've talked about the economic disruptions. We mentioned that as being an agent that has promoted populism and, 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 uh, and anger. But you know, I think I live here in the Midwest, and both the uh, bl- both glo- globalization and the financial crisis hit this region hard. Right. And yes, it was a financial debacle, but I think the thing that most, at the end of the day, that was most troubling in some ways was communities being destroyed, people moving away, um, those bonds that you had being 
broken with your coworkers. And jobs are more than just a way to to su- support your family, although that's a very important thing. They're also a way of measuring your self-worth. I, I have a role to play. I am contributing. Right. I'm sure this is probably your argument against uh, sort of wage support program, you know, government wage support programs and so on, because you you don't you remove that and that intangible of giving someone a sense of belonging and a sense of earning success, earning their success. I mean, this is the key. There's a, the dignity is the real deficit. I mean, we we often talk about the fact that there's too much income inequality, and that economists you know go to blows over whether it's consumption inequality or post-tax or pre-tax, all that stuff that, you know, everybody's crossing swords about. The truth of the inequality problem is that we have a dignity inequality problem in this country. And there's just too much despair and not enough dignity. And as a, as a happiness matter, as a, as, a, as a social psychological matter, despair comes from not being needed. And that gets back to the point that you're yes, bringing up right yes. now. I mean, the truth is, yes, you, yes, everybody, we need to be needed. And, and the truth is that it's, it's very interesting, I have to say. And so this is something that, that Democrats and Republicans should be able to come together on. Any policy that treats poor people like liabilities to manage is, in, is encouraging despair and is discouraging dignity. And so what we need to be arguing about about you know, right and left, conservatives and liberals, et cetera, is how do we get more dignity in this country? How do we actually make it so everybody's needed in this? We cannot have several generations of people, whether it's in Appalachia or the inner city or in the, in the, in the you know, Rio Grande uh, region of Texas, where we have several generations of people for, for liabilities to the state and to their communities. It's just not right. That is the the incredible moral lapse for a country like the United States and, and all the downstream effects of that that we see about, you know, drug dependency and, you know, the way that, that, the, you know, populism and politics and polarization and political hatred and you name it, man, it all comes back to these dislocations and our, our lack of imagination in, in, in trying to redress the dignity gap. Do you disagree with any of that? Uh, not at all. I just, uh, you know, I don't want to minimize people also, they, they need to do need to support their families. Yeah, they do I need agree, to feel completely. that they and 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 in terms, of, I, w- I would say to you as a uh, apostle of capitalism, for people to you know, capitalism isn't trading that high these days yeah. either because people need to feel like that that the system's on the up and up, and they've got a stake in it. Right. And if they work hard, they can progress in that system. And I think that's something that we need to uh, work toward. I completely agree with that, by the way, David. It's like the, the objective is to push capitalism all the way to the margin. That's what we need to do so that everybody has an actual role to play in capitalism as opposed to having it be a system where it's kind of good for people who are already really lucky, but it's re- it, but everybody who's getting socialism is on the perimeter and all the people in the capitalism are in the middle. That That's not the way the system that we really want. And then we need to have a big argument about the role of the state and actually how do you push capitalism to the perimeter. We talk about globalization, but really one of the main culprits, if you can call it that, has been automation. Right. And that with the with the advent of AI, that's going to become even more complicated in in you know in promoting this problem that we're this crisis really that we're talking about, which is devaluing. Uh, People because it takes fewer of them to do tasks that it used to take more of them right. to do. I, I want to ask you about the pandemic 
because you know you've talked a lot about loneliness. Right. Interestingly, just as an aside, during the pandemic, one of my thoughts was, gee, we're extolling the virtues of the people we call essential workers, and we should. But as soon as the pandemic was over, they became sort of background music again. And we sort of forgot about all of that. But those of us who were well off and could operate on a computer and I think were in one situation and there were a lot of people who were in others. And I just, it feels like the pandemic was a watershed event in terms of the promotion of isolation. I I just, I don't know how to put it. I'm just so disappointed. You know, bad things happen. Bad things happen in your family and my family and in our communities. And when bad things happen, strong families come together and they're closer as a result of it. And there's more love, not less love. And that's what should have happened with the pandemic in the United States. Instead, we have less trust. I mean, everything is political. The, the shot is political. You know, the CDC is political. Everything is political. And it's, you know, did you get the second booster? I can tell you if you're a Democrat or Republican on the basis of the answer to that question. That is insanity. That is insanity. And, and, yeah. and you know, we, we, we missed an incredible opportunity to come through trying times together as a country in, in the way that the United States did in World War II. Um, and, and that's just such a pity. I mean, it's just such a, I understand why I get it, you know, and I get it. I understand the political actors on, you know, both sides and how it was used and the rhetoric that was used, et cetera. You know, I sit in a community that was four square on one side of the debate and I got it. I just didn't have to agree with my own community in a lot of ways on, you know, how we were doing things with closure of schools, et cetera. Um, but I was willing to, I was willing to be wrong. I was willing to, you know, say that I didn't have all the answers and all that, but that's just not the way that the whole thing played out. I'm just, I don't know, I'm just incredibly disappointed about the way this has driven us apart even more. Talk to me about how, why you wrote this book, From Strength yeah. to Strength. Some of it may have to do with that you're on the doorstep of a big birthday. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I wrote the book. I started writing the book, From Strength to Strength, which is the book that came out in 2022. So this came out in February of last year. Um, I started the book about eight years earlier, as a matter of fact, and it was started as a research, social science research project for my own life. I didn't intend to publish it as a book. I was trying to use my empirical, my mathematical toolkit as a, as a quantitative social scientist to, to figure out the path forward in my own life. I've had a lot of stages, you know, you, you mentioned I was a classical musician, that I was an academic and that I was a nonprofit executive and, and, and I was trying to figure out what I could do to create the most, add the most value with my life and career. And I noticed that my strengths were changing, not of my own volition. And so in so doing, I found out all kinds of very interesting patterns that I found that most people don't understand their changing strengths. I told it from strength to strength, which is from Psalm 84. And, you know, there's this famous Jewish blessing, may you move, may you go from strength to strength. It's, it's a very beautiful yes. thing, right? And the, but the whole point is, if you don't know what your strength is, you're not going to go there. And so I wrote the book for myself to know what I was going to be naturally good at as I got older. So I'd have the, the, so I'd have the, the confidence to jump from one strength to another or to try a new thing that would be uh, um, the zone of my, of my abilities. And, and it turns out that it, a lot of people were asking the same question. So I published the book about, you know, is mostly just for anybody that's trying to do a lot with their lives, which is a lot of Americans, a lot of people for all walks yeah. of life, right? And I want, as they get older, how can they be better? 
as opposed to feeling weaker. That was the whole point. Interestingly, you started with, uh, and you may have been heading to D.C. when this happened, but uh, you, uh, the a- anecdote about a prominent, uh, older prominent figure, you know, who was uh, hugely successful and recognized as such, uh, who was uh, plainly deeply unhappy. I heard a, a hero from the 60s and 70s. I mean, this is not, this is not a politician that, that is controversial or an entertainer or something. I mean, uh, this was somebody who is justifiably could be, could claim to have, with a small group of people to have changed the course of American life uh, for the better. And, and I heard him confessing to his wife that he might as well be dead right behind. And, and I'm thinking, ah, this is probably some guy, he's like a junior high gym teacher or something. He's never really been noted for all the good things in his life has been overlooked and now he's gotten retired and he's disappointed with all the opportunities he's missed or something. And, and when that play where we landed at Dulles airport in Washington, where he landed a billion times too, the guy stands up with his wife and I turn around and it's one of the most famous men in the world. You know, so somebody's going to do 20 acts what Arthur Brooks is going to do. And, you know, maybe even more than what David Axelrod is going to do. I mean, it's like, no joke. This guy was a, is the king of the mambo. And, and beloved, people were recognizing him. And the, I mean, the, the pilot, as we were leaving the plane, the pilot's like, you know, they all talk like, talk like Chuck Yeager. It's like, thanks for flying United folks. <laughs> he says, yeah. sir, he recognized him. He says, sir, you've been my hero since I was a little boy. And he's beaming with pride. And I'm thinking, so which is it? Is it the one right now? Or is it the one an hour ago who was confessing to his wife that he literally, he said, I might as well be dead. And I thought, but then, I, but then, you know, I'll confess that I thought this really, really selfish thing, which is in 30 years or 40 years, um, I don't want to be saying that to my, my wife, Esther, my long suffering wife, who's put up with this, you know, this really this <laughs> weird winding path that has been my career. I don't want to, you know, honey, honey, I might as well be dead. And, and so I, I decided to do the research on find out, to find out, you know, how how I could actually have a more satisfying future that was not depending on some sort of a glorious past. And that's what that was. That's I, and I wrote the book for me. I did. I wrote the book for you and anybody who's trying yeah. to do a lot. Well received because I read it uh, and I uh, benefited from it. One of the things that you write about there is the difference between two kinds of intelligence, the intelligence that you that drives you and that you possess at younger at a younger age and the kind of crystallized intelligence that you have with the value of experience when you're older. Talk a little a little bit about that. And maybe this is part of what drove you back to the academy, you know, is uh is that realization? Yeah, absolutely. So there's the, the, this is the work that comes from Raymond Cattell, who was a great social psychologist from Great Britain in the 60s and 70s. And his work, he was an intelligence researcher, but not the way that we think about that topic now, you know, IQ, et cetera. He talked about it with respect to cognitive strengths, particularly at different times of life. And he noticed that younger people, um, they tend to be very uh, uh, autonomous in their innovation. They tend to have a lot of working memory. They have indefatigable focus. Um, and that, that ability actually gets stronger and stronger through the twenties and thirties has to peak in their late thirties and then it declines in their forties and fifties. Most people think that's the whole show. And so people have good, you know, they have professional standing, they have a lot of experience, they have good health, but they're in their forties and they're wondering when they're burning out. The reason is because they're not making progress because of that, what's called fluid intelligence. 
They don't have as many ideas. They can't focus as well. That stuff. And they can't quite put their finger on it. That's why your, your dentist at age 43 starts taking Fridays off to golf. She doesn't care about golf. She's taking Fridays off to golf because something is just not the way it used to be with her career anymore. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was guilt over the pain that he inflicted on me, but, uh, but yeah, I take your point. Cause that's because she can afford it, man. No, but, and what, but the interesting <laughs> thing is that that's not the end. On the contrary, because Raymond Cattell found there's a second intelligence curve that comes in behind fluid intelligence. As fluid intelligence is declining, a second curve is increasing through your 40s and 50s and 60s and stays high in your 70s and 80s. And as long as the Lord gives you your marbles, you're going to retain this for the rest of your life, which is called crystallized intelligence. Now, crystallized intelligence does not work, rely on working memory, thank God. It does not re rely on in a, in autonomous innovation. In other words, you coming up alone with the next big idea or working memory focus, any of that stuff. What it relies on is your ability to recognize patterns, to use the knowledge that you have in a wise way, to help people understand complicated ideas in a relatively simple fashion. In other words, your first curve is your innovative curve. Your crystallized intelligence curve is your professor curve, your teacher curve, your mentor curve, your mm -hmm. pattern recognizing curve. And that's the reason that, that it's, you're better off as a startup entrepreneur when you're 30, you're better off as a venture capitalist at 60 or as a, you know, as the, mm -hmm. the hot shot you know, associate in the law firm, the litigator at 30 and the managing partner at 60. And there's a version of that in every career. So, you know, you went from this really innovative career of what you were doing early on. And then you went to the University of Chicago and did the Institute of Politics. Perfect. You, 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 you ambled into the perfect career cadence is the way that that worked out. I, I, I had to figure it out a little bit more the hard way, looking at the data and giving a long, hard look at what I was doing. I was trying to, I was living in the past, man. And I said, this has got to change. It's on the basis of my data. I quit. And I, um, and I took a teaching job and now I travel around, I give talks, I write books, but they're not books based on my own data analysis. I have to harvest the work of other people and translate it into terms that other people can use. I write a weekly science column on the science of happiness, which is a teaching column in the Atlantic. And so I'm just doing, I'm doing professor yes. stuff and I'm in the zone, man. I could not have done this when I was 35. I couldn't have done it because I would have been writing this like, honks and squawks, really technical stuff. Nobody would understand a word I'm talking about. And now I can actually express myself in a way where I can have fairly complicated ideas and, and people can understand them. And it's enormously satisfying. And, and I, I, I only figured that out because I looked at the science and that's what the book is about, how to do that. The mentoring role is also such a satisfying role. The reason I started yeah. the Institute of Politics was because I didn't want to do campaigns anymore. But I was so inspired by these young people around the campaign. And uh, I didn't want to give that up. I didn't want to give that part of the experience up, the ability to mentor. Right. It's a beautiful thing. We're going to run out of time here. But I, I, I promised myself yeah. I'd ask you this because I found it so intriguing. The yeah. bucket list. Uh, where you actually take yeah. things off your yeah, yeah. Uh, list. Explain that whole concept to me because that's part of this as yeah, well. Yeah, no, one know? of the things, one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they think that satisfaction is a simple function of having more. If I have that thing, if I have that relationship, if I have that status, then I'll be satisfied. And it's wrong. And part of the reason for that is that your brain won't let you maintain satisfaction from achievements or from anything. It, 
you need to be ready for the next thing. This is an evolutionary phenomenon. You can't stay, you know, in front of the bush with the berries on it in the Pleistocene, just being feeling satisfied for three days or a saber-toothed tiger will come and eat you. You have to be ready to be, to, to adjust to the next set of circumstances. And that's why you think you're going to love that thing forever, but then you don't. So you'll be in the chase again. Mother nature wants you to feel like you're going to be satisfied, but not achieve it. You know, Mick Jagger said, I can't get no satisfaction. He was wrong. You can't keep no satisfaction. That's the tyranny of mother nature in life. The way that we're fooled is by thinking, I will be satisfied if I have more. The truth is your satisfaction is all the things that you have divided by all the things that you want. Haves divided by wants. We, to get stable and lasting satisfaction, you have to stand up to mother nature. You have to take the divine path, which is not the numerator having more. The divine path is managing your wants. It's wanting less is what it comes down to. Now, this is really, really important. It was super important for me to figure this one out, that the idea of the unbounded acquisitive materialism or wanting all of the fame or power, whatever your idol is in the world, this is just folly. It's just a huge problem. So how do I execute that? When I was a younger man, I was told that I should, to, to be a properly ambitious, I should have a bucket list, you know, and, and on my birthday, I list all of my cravings and desires and ambitions and imagine myself enjoying those things. And all it did is made me feel like a loser for not having those things. Why? Because it was engorging the denominator of my house divided by wants equation. When the denominator goes up, satisfaction goes down. Now what I do is I have this reverse bucket list. It's, it, and you know, what I do is I list all of my attachments and desires and cravings and I cross them out. Nothing I'm not going to get them, but I'm not attached to them anymore. And, and here's the interesting thing, David. I just turned 59 in May and on my list, one of the things I was really attached to that was holding me back was my, a lot of my political opinions. And so I wrote down a bunch of my political opinions and I crossed them out. And it wasn't because I don't have them anymore. It's because I wasn't going to be attached to them. You see, because man, I need more friends. And my political opinions, when I was too attached to them, that was holding me back. I've done a lot of work with the Dalai Lama over the last 11 years. And he says that opinions mm -hmm. are some of our worst attachments, sticky cravings. He called it dukkha is, you know, the first noble law of, of Buddhism, which is that life is suffering. Life is attachment in this way. So I, I crossed him out. I'm telling you, I just, I mean, it's just so great to have a reverse bucket list that includes your opinions to be able to appreciate not having things and it appreciate things that other people have that you don't have and that you don't even understand, like people who believe things that you don't believe. It's just incredibly free. That's one of the secrets. And especially to allow the space and time, as you point out, to appreciate what you have. I mean, the one thing, one of the things that uh, was struck me about that the pandemic was I spent the entire time with my wife, Susan, and sometimes with family who would come and stay, and with our dog, Mac. Yeah. And I realized how sublime just a long yeah. walk with the two of them was. Yeah. And I had to confess, this makes me happy. And it was a real revelation. Anyway, here's what I suggest to people that they should not cross off uh, their bucket list is that book, uh, From Strength to Strength. And you've got a new one coming in September. If you mentioned Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. Getting happy is, it is. good. And I suggest people uh, 
read your works, listen to your thoughts, and work on that because we're going to be a better country and a better society if people can find their way that to that happiness. Thank you. And, you know, the, the new book, Build the Life You Want, is co-authored with a mutual friend of ours, Oprah Winfrey. Yes, yes, and yes. She's, and she's wonderful. Yes, she's, yeah. she's, she's as great as people I, think. I saw, I saw that. Although... Probably at the end of this, given what you just said, she's not going to say, you get a car and you get a car and you get a car like she used to. She's so generous. Giving the cars away was a gift that Oprah gave to herself. To herself. Because that's the ultimate joy is in the giving. David, you've given me a lot in this conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for what you're doing and thank you for your friendship. Yeah, Arthur, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.